0: Welcome to the Boneyard with Steve Robertson. As always, I am your good friend and host, Steve Robertson, here on the Maroon Friday edition of the yard. Hope you are well today. I'm wearing maroon. I hope you are as well. Even though we're not playing a ball game this weekend, I'm still representing the brand. Hope you guys are. Isn't it wonderful that we live in a country that we can celebrate Maroon Friday as we choose? I think it's a cool thing that we do that. I think it's lost its luster just a little bit. You know, years ago, you know, we'd, we'd tweet out pictures of people celebrating Maroon Friday, and we've kind of gotten away from that. I wish we would get back to that, to be quite honest with you. I think we should be proud of the Bulldogs. I mean, shoot, we're national champions. want to share with you a couple things, too. You know, baseball scrimmages are going on. Uh, yesterday, Logan Tanner uh, kind of jammed up an ankle, sliding into second base. I suspect he's done for the fall. No reason to expect him to miss any time once we resume practice, but uh, that happened yesterday. Of course, we're covering all the scrimmages. Matter of fact, Gene went over to Sanford uh, last weekend while we were all in College Station. Well, I say all of us, not many of us, but while we were all celebrating a Texas A&M win, the fine folks at genespage.com, were covering the baseball scrimmage out there. So I understand Logan Tanner is at the World Series game today in a boot. So he is not participating, but again, wanted to get that out there to you because that, you know, it's out there. I guess some people are aware of it, but the bottom line is we don't expect him to miss any time. Not exactly sure what we're looking at as far as recovery, but, um, you know, plenty of time between now, you know, baseball season for us begins Valentine's day weekend, most seasons. So plenty of time to kind of get him healthy and ready to roll. So, it's out there, so I wanted to address that, too. I'm, you know, contrary to popular belief, I'm not a Pollyanna. Now, one of the things that I have heard you know, from talking to some people that have participated in uh, covering the scrimmages, but also, too, from some people that are able to observe our practice sessions that aren't an inter-squad scrimmage, is that we may be a better offensive team this year than we were last year. Now, pitching-wise, you know, we don't have a lot of our best pitchers throwing during the fall. They will throw as we get a little closer to, uh, you know, the season, of course. Handful of guys, you know, Preston Johnson, Landon Sims. Now, I know many of you, this is a controversial topic, and so I want to broach this as best we can. Landon Sims has always been a starter until this past season, and he became, you know, one of – the best closers in all college baseball. Now, expect him to be a starter this year, whether that's Friday night or Saturday night, you know, we'll see. We signed him to be a starter, so we'll have to kind of figure out the back end. Does that mean Preston Johnson becomes the closer? Possibly. Does that mean Walling is the closer? I don't know. We'll see. You know, he's got great velo and some control issues, so we're kind of figuring that out. But offensively, this team's been very, very good. We had a blowout yesterday. If you're keeping up with, uh, you know, with the scrimmages, Team Cheese—that's Coach Kyle Cheesebro, the volunteer assistant coach—and the fact that he's a volunteer assistant coach is an indictment on the NCAA uh, laws about bylaws about staffing. It's a joke. It really is. So Team Cheese beats Team Goat ten to one—the opening game of the series. Now. We missed a couple practices due to rain, so we basically just kind of tacked them on here at the end to kind of put things together. I want to give you a couple updates from the, uh, you know, from the, uh, the write-up on that. So here's, here's how it worked out. Uh, Team G's batted around, had a really big inning there to kind of get things going. Sent 10 men to the plate, picked up five hits. Tanner Leggett had a one-out double. To start the rally, and then four guys followed Bryce Chance, Braylon Skinner, Lane Forsyth, all singled to kind of make things keep going. Jess Davis and Hunter Hines were, they both reached on hit by pitches and then uh, walked to load the bases for Logan Tanner. Tanner hit a two out, two run singled left, uh, and then Hines scored on a throwing error. So, you know, offensively doing pretty good there for sure. Team Cheese, uh, Finished with 10 hits on the day. Chance, Bryce Chance, 3-for-3, three three, one of the newcomers. Three singles and an RBI. Tanner Leggett, the hero of uh, our bracket-clinching game against Texas, was 2-for-4 with a double and one run batted in. There was a lot of discussion if, if Tanner Leggett would come back this year. Lee is back. That's good. Uh, Gotros team had one run on the day, and it was a pair of doubles. Kellum Clark. And uh, Luke Hancock, you know, back-to-back doubles. Hancock, Brad Kumbas uh, led the team going two for three apiece. So, again, we've got some good things going. Brandon Smith with a, with a good outing yesterday. Stone Simmons was the pitcher of record uh, for Team GOAT. And so that that second game is ongoing now. So, a lot of good things happening with Mississippi State baseball. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say this, you know, because I believe I've got a pretty good finger on the pulse of Bulldog baseball, we're going to be right in the thick of things again for a top eight national seed. We are. Now, can we get there? I think it boils down to pitching. You know, if Landon Sims goes to the weekend as an SEC starter, well, he's probably going to get you six or seven. And you've got to find a way to kind of bridge the gap there at the end. And so I know that that is something that will be of concern to many of you. But I think it's important that we kind of get that out there today to be prepared for that as we begin to push towards a February season opener. Full schedule has not been announced just yet. We kind of know what we're going to do uh, conference-wise. That's already been announced. But uh, I-, I like this team. Jaeger uh, and Jess Davis, both great new additions. Those are guys who are plug-and-play guys. You expect those guys to come in. Probably see Yeager start at second. Forsythe, of course, down a stretch, as good defensively as any shortstop in America. Cam James was outstanding in postseason play. I believe you're going to see him make a bit of a jump this year. Luke Hancock, of course, stays at first. So offensively, I think you're going to be really good. And I think defensively, the infield will be really good as well. Braylon Skinner, Jess Davis kind of competing for the center field spot. Kellum Clark playing out right. Compass, your everyday left fielder. Who DH is? I think, will, will kind of depend on matchups and the lefty-righty matchup and that sort of stuff. And, of course, Logan Tanner behind the plate. And so when you hear those things and you start thinking, you know, really, you know, well, how do we replace, you know, T.A. and Rowdy Jordan? I don't know that you replace them with two players. I think everybody else has got to pick up some of the slack, and we're going to miss the leadership there. And I think that's really the key to this team. You know, it's who is going to be the dude. Who is going to be the guy, you know, when things maybe don't go our way, that kind of settles everybody down. You know, Cam James is a bit of a leader. But Cam's not maybe the, right, you know, the, the vocal guy that, say, T.A. was. You know, Braylon Skinner is a guy that's an uh, outstanding defender. But not a big rah-rah guy either. You know, And so he's a guy, too, that you know, was probably going to be your everyday left fielder last year, beginning of the year. Of course, he broke the bone in his hand. Took him some time to get going. And he just needs reps. Just needs some A.B.s. Kellum Clark is a guy that's got some real juice to him. That's a guy that I think you can kind of build an order around. And so how this thing kind of comes together and gels, I think we're going to have a lot of power in the lineup this year. And we say we didn't have a lot of power last year. We were worried about power from the right-handed part of the plate, you know, with Jordan Westberg and Justin Foscu moving on. And we ended up having one of our best long ball years in recent memory. If I'm not mistaken, one of the top 10 years in home runs in Mississippi State's history, if I'm not mistaken. And that's, you know, in the new era of new bats and new balls. So it's not, you know, guerrilla years. So, again, I think this team will be able to score some runs. I think this team is going to be able to pitch pretty well, too. I think it's just a matter of kind of figuring out roles. And listen, we got arguably the best pitching coach in America and Scott Foxhall. Nobody did a better, better job managing pitchers last season. It was all this criticism early in the year that I don't understand why Fox and letting these guys go deeper in the ball games. And you saw what happened at Ole Miss. You saw what happened at Vanderbilt and other places, Alabama, Arkansas, in some respects. A lot of those guys lost pitchers, you know. And we do lo- lose Riley self, but, you know, Riley was a guy too that, uh, you know, was probably pitching as well as he has pitched since his freshman year in 2020 and then has the year kind of taken from him. But, uh, you know, we lose him. And I hate to say it this way, but it wasn't a major loss. And, uh, again, that's no criticism of Riley. He just you know, wasn't quite what he was when he was an All-American as a freshman. But uh, the reality of it is is that we're going to return a nucleus of players that know what it takes to win it all. And then you bring in, you know, winners like Jess Davis and R.J. Yeager, and you begin to realize, you know what, offensively this team has what it takes to contend again. They really do. It's all going to boil down to pitching. And we talk about that all the time. Every team that gets production from the bottom third of the order and can identify a third starter generally puts themselves in a position to win a top eight national seed designation. You know, last year we kind of were by committee on Sunday and then figured it out and had Houston Harding down the stretch. be nice if we had him this year, right? You know, but his age – you know, the fact that he'd been going to school forever and a day, you know, he was ready to make a move. And so we wish him the absolute best. But uh, feel really good about this team. feel really good about our prospects. And feel really good about the opportunity to see a lot of postseason baseball at Duty Noble Field come late spring, early summer. I want to thank our good friends at Bulldog Burger Company. I really love that place. They, listen, I was a fan of Bulldog Burger Company long before they sponsored the show. And so when they approached me and said hey i'd like to work with you guys i'm thinking man this is so great because i like to identify with winners because i consider myself a winner and so I, i don't go out there and hitch my wagon to people that don't do a great job and that's what you have at bulldog burger company a great company a great brand that produces great products at a great price you can't beat it bulldog burger company three great locations to serve you The flagship right here on University Drive in Start Vegas, Gloucester Street there in Tupelo. What a fine building that is. And then the brand new one run by Ian Few there on uh, Lake Harbor Drive, the Ridgewood Flowwood area. You're going to enjoy it. You will. Go by, check them out. Have the spring rolls for the appetizer. They'll make you and everybody around you better looking. We all need more of that. Get that chocolate shake to go. And maybe if you're not in the mood for a burger, maybe everybody else is like, yeah, I want a hamburger. Let's go get the great restaurant quality hamburger. It's only available at Bulldog Burger Company. You can have the sweet heat chicken sandwich. You can have the BLT salad. You can get it fried or grilled. So if you're a little bit health conscious, maybe you're watching what you eat these days, you can still go to Bulldog Burger Company and have some healthy options. Go check them out today. Bulldog Burger Company, the place where people go to meet. M-E-A-T. All right. We met with Mike Leach yesterday. It's a little different. You know, if we did it on Thursday, and like all week, I've just kind of felt weird. Because one of the things that I love about football season is how regimented things are, right? We play a game on Saturday, Sunday's either a travel day or kind of a rest day, you get caught up. Monday, we get leads, Tuesday, it's, you know, it coaches and or players, Wednesday and or players, Thursday is kind of a rest day, and then Friday, of course, uh, you know, high school football and all that good stuff, or it's a travel day in many respects, but uh, this week it's been different. You know, like every day I ask, what day is it? What what, what do we have going on today? Well, we get Mike Leach yesterday, and Coach was in good spirits. We did not practice the early days of this week. Your coaches were on the road. I know they went down to Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College. I know that, uh, let me think here for a second. Let's see, Eric Mealy, the running backs coach, went and saw Jackson Cannon and did some recruiting over in the state of Georgia, Steve Spurrier Jr., did some Gulf Coast stuff. Stopped in to see Lucas Taylor, Mississippi State commitment down there at St. Paul's, Uh, Mason Miller, went to see Percy Lewis. You know, so we're out there doing some things, you know, for sure. So we're on the road recruiting. Now we're back at practice, going to practice today, and then the team will have Saturday off. I suspect that we'll be at some high school football games tonight. We have done a lot of JUCO recruiting. Now, I suspect that you're going to see more and more junior college offers pop up here in the days to come probably need to get an offensive lineman that could be percy lewis from mississippi gulf coast probably need to get a corner because i still believe martin emerson will go pro this year and may even need to get a veteran safety whether it be junior college or whether it be a guy from the portal now the transfer portal thing has been awfully interesting for us guys go in the portal and uh, you you look at the guys we got last year You know, Randy Charlton, of course, is a guy that we basically just kind of beat other people for. And he's been a great addition to this team. But outside of that, you start working through the transfers. Makai Polk, of course, already had a relationship with Mike Leach and the staff because when he was out in high school in California, Leach and company were trying to recruit him to Washington State. So you have a pre-existing relationship. Jalen Green, of course, at the University of Texas. He was recruited to Texas by Mississippi State safety's coach Jason Washington. So, again, a pre-existing relationship. You start running through all this and you begin to realize, you know, hey, it pays to keep those relationships and lines of communication open. I don't think there's any question. Throw in Jameer Calvin, who transferred from Washington State, a guy that knows the, the concepts and understands the demands of the air raid offense. And I think he's made us better not just because of his play, but because of his leadership. Very mature guy. If you've seen any video interviews with him, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is a guy that kind of parrots what he hears from Leach because he's bought in. So you run those things through and you begin to realize, okay, it's one thing to get Jack Abraham from Southern Miss. He is a Mississippi guy, right? And Jack is a guy, too, that I, I still feel so awful for that he hadn't had more of an opportunity. It's just kind of a freak thing, man. It really is. But the reality of it is Will Rodgers is playing well. He's playing well. But the guys around him, as Mike Leach says, have gotten better. You know, I've been on the radio several times this football season, and people always say, well, you know, Will Rodgers, what do you think? Guys, I think he's playing well. And I think in many respects I may have been the only person that thought that. You know, you had a handful of drops. You had some bad protection. At times he was holding the football. You know, Will's not immune from some of the issues we had offensively. We were still putting up big numbers. We just weren't finishing drives. But as Mike Lee said yesterday, you know, a lot of people are kind of attributing, hey, Will's made a jump. It's not really that Will has made a jump because I believe Will has played pretty well the whole year. He's had a couple of interceptions that are you know, pretty inexplicable. But outside of that, been good with football. You know, one, of the, one of the most proficient passers in, in college football. But now all of a sudden, the line is playing better. And I don't think the line has played poorly. I think the line has been really well, played really well the last couple of weeks in SEC play. And let's be honest, when you look at the fronts they face at LSU and A&M, two of the best fronts they're going to see all season, and yet they show some improved play, I think bodes well for that home stretch once we get through Alabama, right? Wide receivers have gotten better. Wide receivers catching the football. We had a couple drops at A&M. And as many times as we throw it, we're probably going to have a drop or two a game. I hate that, but that's just kind of the reality of life. You'd like to get to a situation where every time that the quarterback throws the ball on target and on time, that we make a catch. Doesn't always work that way, though. And so you begin to see Will, you know, Will's getting credit. Oh, he played his best game of, of his career last week, and that may be true. But I don't think it's necessarily because he elevated his play. I think he's been pretty consistent throughout the year. You know, save a couple plays here or there. But the reality of it is, is you're getting better protection and your wide receivers know where to go. And As Mike Leach says, they know where he's going to throw it and when he's going to throw it. And so as a result, you go on the road and you win a big, big ball game. And it was a big ball game. And, of course, you know, there's always a typical thing when Mississippi State wins, either we get lucky or the team wasn't good in the first place. Uh, There was nothing lucky about that win last weekend. Nothing lucky about it at all. If anything, we had some bad luck late we had that bad holding call on dollar bill johnson it wasn't a holding call we had a false start penalty on charles cross where nobody moved so we had some bad luck but we were able to overcome that and like all of you i've been a mississippi state fan all my life and so when we began to have that type of you know that resistance you know from the football gods i i began to think for a second i know how this thing's gonna end i've been here too many times AM's gonna go down the field and kick a field goal and you know, we'll put together a drive, and, you know, we won't, we won't be able to finish it, and we'll lose. And I hate that I feel that way. I, I do. But we've all been there before. We've all seen that movie before, which is why I think it makes that finish that much more important. Because the natural order of things is that, hey, Mississippi State played really well, and they should have won, but they didn't win. Kind of like how we all felt against Memphis and LSU. We should have won, but we didn't win. And so we learned to win one of those ball games where maybe perhaps we weren't getting the breaks late. And I think that bodes well for our conference as we begin to move forward with this thing. And so, you know, Leach touched on those things. He did also mention, too, you know, we're playing a lot more of the younger guys this week, allowing those guys from the scout team to get some scrimmage time in. And so, yeah, and it didn't speak a lot about the young quarterbacks. Paul Jones did ask him, and he mentioned Sawyer Robertson and Daniel Grieg. But he also mentioned uh, Jake Ware from Tupelo. And he's done some nice things. You know, Mike Leach is one of those guys, too. Once you're on the roster, you know, he doesn't really discriminate between scholarship guys or walk-ons. Just ask Wes Welker. And so, if you can play, you're going to play. And so, not that I expect Jake Ware to unseat Sawyer Robertson down the stretch. But I think it it goes to show you that, you know, we're getting pretty deep into the depth chart in these practices and repping these guys and letting them get some practical experience. So that's good stuff. I also asked Leach myself about, you know, listen, Coach, you have beaten some top-ranked teams. How do you prepare? How do you get your team mentally prepared to go play against a team that has that mystique? And his very simple answer is you just go do your job. That's what you tell everybody. Just go do your job. It's difficult. It's difficult. Because, you know, I I give Sylvester Croom, you know, some uh, credit for a, a lot of things. One of the things that he said that's always kind of stuck with me is, you know, we got to play the guys on the field, not the stickers on the helmet. And that happens sometimes. We start thinking, oh, well, this is Alabama, so they should win. Listen, guys, I expect Alabama to win. Just because the talent differential is so expansive, I don't expect us to get beat the way we did last year. I just don't. And, you know, maybe I'm kidding myself, but I, listen, I expect Alabama to win. They'll probably cover. But I don't think that we're going to get this absolutely destroyed in that ball game. I don't. I don't know that we'll be close enough to make it interesting in the fourth quarter. Don't know. But I think that we are a better team than we were last year. And people remember, too, it's like a lot of people were clamoring for Will Rogers to start, you know, when we got ready to go play last year at Alabama. And that would have been a mistake. You don't want the guy making his first college start on the road, you know, against, uh, you know, the beast that is Alabama. But he did get in the ballgame. And that's the thing that I go back to. I've had this discussion several times, even with some of you guys. You know, the only game that we have played – and under Mike Leach that we weren't quote in the ball game in the fourth was Alabama Now you could make an argument too we never really got off the bus at Kentucky defensively played pretty well in that ball game but that was just kind of one of those weird games but that Alabama game we get beat 41 nothing but outside of that you know we've been in some ball games this year and last year and that's coaching there's so much of that too that we know there are a lot of people that have criticisms of coaches that's really just kind of rooted in emotion but the facts of the matter are this is under Mike Leach we have been in the ball game with rare exception in the fourth quarter so we are playing meaningful football in the fourth quarter sometimes we've come back to win sometimes we've lost but the reality of it is is we don't quit Now, Alabama, we didn't quit against Alabama. They just beat us. They're just that much better than us. It was 17-0 after the first quarter, 27-0 at the break. You remember all that? Let's go back and look at a few of individual stats. You know, Will Rogers played the lion's share of that ball game. You know, KJ Costello, 4 of 11 for the 16 yards, gets concussed, comes out. And so Will Rogers is already, you know, playing from a deficit, but he has nothing to lose. Will goes 24-37, 147 yards, a couple of picks, and takes one sack. We you have two sacks to Alabama last year. And you know what an adventure the offensive line was last year. A lot of people, we never knew from one week to the next, you know, who's going to play. But I think, you know, when you go back and look at how well Will played against A&M kind of mopping up last year, I think he learned a little bit, and I think that made him a little more confident this year. So when he saw A&M outside of red zone defense, he kind of knew what to expect in many respects. And so the fact that he had some success, and again, you know, we get beat 41 nothing. so it's difficult to find, uh, you know, a rainbow in a black sky, is that Will has played Alabama. So I don't think there will be all of this hype in his mind. I don't think he'll be overwhelmed by the moment. And you've got some guys like Makai Polk and Jameer Calvin and Emily Keith and some other guys that have played in some big ball games, And so I don't think that we'll be overwhelmed, at least by emotion. no, Alabama might come up here and beat us 50 to nothing. They may. I don't expect that. But they're certainly capable of doing that, especially if we don't play a good ball game. But I think having this open date and having the ability to kind of feel good for two weeks, you know, it's like if we had played this week – One of the biggest chores I think the coaching staff would have had is kind of pulling the players out of the clouds. And so now you don't have to deal with that. You've got a week to kind of celebrate that and then prepare for Alabama. Now, Mike Lee said they really hadn't done a lot of advanced scouting of Alabama yet. So he'll do a lot of that this weekend. He'll be able to watch a lot more film. Doesn't have to cram it all in quite as quickly so he can be a little more deliberate, kind of picking apart their tendencies and things of that nature. How much that matters next Saturday, I don't know. But I think this is a team, too, that kind of understands once we clear Alabama, we get into the second half of the season, we've got a chance to go make some hay. We really do. I mean, I. All right, Bulldog fans. Our friends from Tacovus want to remind you that uh, it's festival season. It's concert season. It's sundress season. Yes, it is. And you know you need some nice boots to go along with every bit of that. And Takovas is your stop for the best in Western wear. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and so much more. All Tacovis boots are made by hand in a very time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Takovas has first wear comfort, so no break-in period. You know how tough that can be with a brand-new pair of boots. You can put these bad boys on and ride that ride with a smile. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with the same level of style. So stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary beverage or two, shop in new styles, the smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are always at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience quite like it. If you can't make it to a store, visit tacovas.com. Tecovas, they offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges shipped right to your door. Go to Tacovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Let's face it, friends. We live in uncertain times. Security, probably more important now than ever before. That's why it's important to keep you, your family, your property safe by working with my friends at Ufy. That's e-u-fy.com. Let me tell you a little bit about this new video smart lock they have. F-Y. Again, I'm, ex- I'm excited about the season. I think the Texas A&M game, in many respects, saved the season. Because if we're staring two and four right in the face, there's going to be a lot of fan apathy. There may be some locker room issues. I, I don't know that for a fact. But, you know, I mean, it's only human nature to think, you know, hey, you, it's difficult to maintain a buy-in, you know, when you go three and seven last year in regular season. And now you're two and four. And you only got the one uh, non-conference game left to go on the schedule. That's the FCS game with Tennessee State. But then you start working through this thing and say, okay, well, hey, we're three and two. We could be three and three at the midway point, And every game on the schedule that's remaining is winnable. I share with you guys on Wednesday's show, and I still believe this, you know, what you saw last weekend is what you're going to see most games. I just, I, you know, I don't see us blowing a lot of people out. You know, we might blow out Vanderbilt. We should blow out Tennessee State. We better blow out Tennessee State. But it's, you know, we get ready to play Kentucky, Auburn, you know, Ole Miss, Arkansas. They're going to be pretty much comparable games to what you saw last weekend because I think all these teams are basically you know, pretty much on the same level. I think there's Alabama, Georgia, then everybody else, and then Vanderbilt. That's how it looks to me, where everybody in that second tier is capable of beating each other on any given Saturday. And so we just got to make sure – that we find a way to win one of those, or if not two of those games, you win two of those games, you beat Van D. and Tennessee State. You're a seven and five team, which is what many people on our side of defense kind of expected. I think I set the over under at seven and five. Said you know we might could pull an upset somewhere and get to eight and four. I thought the floor was six and six, and I still believe that. I know many in the SEC media had us four and eight and five and seven, and that's just the typical Mississippi State. You know it's like we went through that with Dan Mullen, even when we were a great football team. Well, yeah, well, they had a good year last year, but there's no way. Oh, well, guys were returning, you know, 25 seniors. Ah, yeah, but it's Mississippi State. And so we're still kind of battling some of that bias. But at the end of the day, what they think doesn't even matter. You just go out there and win ball games. You just go win. I mean, how many, how many glowing articles did you see about State's win over A&M that wasn't written by people in the Mississippi State beat? It was a big win. Instead, it's like, oh, you know, look at A&M. You know, they're staring 0-3 in the face in the SEC, and they are. And it's not because they're playing Alabama. It's because Mississippi State went in their own backyard and beat them. That's a quality win. Now, is A&M playing up to expectations? They're not. They're absolutely not. But it's interesting. There are a lot of people in the SEC media that spent the offseason hyping up A&M, despite the fact that we had no clue who their quarterback was going to be. And that matters in this league. It does. Expecting their defense to be really good. What were they, fourth or fifth in the country in pass defense? And then State went through the ball all over them. All over them last weekend. And so, you know, we're all learning, and this game is evolving as the season kind of unfolds. And so I just kind of enjoy taking it week to week. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't have a game to cover tomorrow, so I'm going to watch a lot of college football that I don't have to write about. We'll talk about it on Monday. But I'm going to get up, watch college game day, and I'm going to watch Ole Miss and Arkansas play, and I'm going to watch Auburn and Georgia play, and I might get done watching football about 2 in the morning when the Pac-12 games are over. I'm going to enjoy watching college football this weekend, and I hope that you guys do as well. It's a great time. I wish it wasn't quite so hot, though. I mean, it's, we're you know, coming up on mid-October, and it's like 90 degrees around here. I mean, come on, guys. Really? You were teasing me here a few weeks ago we had these nice cooler temperatures in the uh, mid mid to high 70s a little of that fall crisp breeze in the air thinking man we've turned a corner now i can't even go to town and get something to eat without getting all sweaty it's ridiculous but here we are all right let's get into today's top 10 list brought to you by clothes with blair.com that's b-l-a-i-r clothes with blair i've known blair a long time he is a friend of mine i would not funnel business in his direction your business if i didn't believe in him i didn't trust in him and here's the thing you don't have to take my word for it over 20 years in the industry in the top one percent close ratio nationally works for fairway mortgage company that's not a fly by night subprime lender that's the real deal and you've got their ace gun going to work for you i got it seen every loan possible whether you're just waking up to the realization you know one day i'd like to own a home or perhaps you're in a home looking to refi. And that's kind of the focus of things right now. You know, with building materials kind of being, uh, you know, escalated in price due to all the supply chain issues, maybe you want to go do an addition to your home, or maybe you want to consolidate some debt. Now's a great time to refi while rates are low. And with this challenging economy that we're in right now, you can expect those rates to soar in the months ahead. That's what many of the experts are expecting. So rather than wait around for that, why not get your home equity working for you? Visit blair.com and by being a loyal Boneyard listener, he is going to make a you know, kind of throw you guys the Ken Folks discount. You know, many of you know me, know Blair, and so we like to keep it in the family. If you mention to Blair either by text or email or over the phone, that, hey, you know what, Blair. I'm coming your way because I heard Steve talk about you on the boneyard. He's going to pay for your appraisal. That used to be a $300 value. These days, there are many appraisals that are going for five and 600 bucks. So that's not an unsubstantial fee. Blair's going to take care of it for you. That's simple. Give Blair a call today or text at 601-500-2344. That's right, 601-500-2344. Looking to refile, looking to buy, looking to get a second mortgage? He can handle all of it. No lawn too big or too small. My guy can take care of you. Blair Chandler at clotheswithblair.com. Okay. So, you know, I, ha- I lived through some great eras in music. I guess I'm an old guy. And uh, it's better than the alternative, right? It's better to keep on living. It's L I V I N G living. And so there, there has been a revisionist history kind of about, I guess you could say, kind of the rise and fall of, uh, of hair metal, you know, and and that term is almost, you know, it's disrespectful in many respects because, you know, a lot of those bands, like bands like Tesla are kind of lumped into that. Tesla was a great rock and roll band. You know, bands like Dokken, they were great hard rock bands. They weren't necessarily part of the Revlon Rockers group. You know, and I love Motley Crue, but they had a phase, you know, with a the Theater Pain album. You know, they, they wore a lot of makeup. They did. But what happened towards the, you know, I would say kind of post-Dr. Feel Good kind of post rats uh city to city album reach for the sky as those albums you know were huge you know but as that began to wane a little bit we were looking for something new in music and so a lot of people point to 1991 and say hey well this was kind of like the beginning of the end it really wasn't it really wasn't so the grunge scene, in many respects, was fueled by a Hollywood band that really brought alternative rock to the mainstream. And I'm talking about Jane's Addiction. Only four studio albums. But the first couple albums were groundbreaking. Changed everything. And I remember when they began to pour it out, it was different, you know, because, like, we gotten so used to the same stuff, you know. And so Perry Farrell, Dave Navarro, those guys were incredible, and um, and so it was something totally different. And they started playing it like on uh, 120 minutes, and even played it somewhat Headbangers Ball, even though it didn't necessarily fit. They played it, and we began to kind of dig it. And most of my friends that went to college, you know, that they knew who Perry Farrell, Dave Navarro, Stephen Perkins, and Chris Chaney were. They knew. Because something cool was happening in music. And if you go back and listen to some of those earlier albums, it you can hear kind of the beginning elements of grunge and alt-rock. You know, Perry Farrell, of course, was uh, very instrumental in Lollapalooza. Lollapalooza was a, was a festival that kind of brought bands like Jane's Addiction to the forefront. Nobody was really doing festivals back then. Yeah, you, you did... You know, you did. You know, you did big concerts. You did arenas. You had arena rock. You know, so people would go up there, and you know, you'd have an opening band, you'd have your headliner to play for two and a half hours, and we'd call it a day. Well, Perry Farrell and the organizers of Palooza were like, "Hey, well, you know, let's take some of our friends out and get them some exposure." And of course, you know, that's. You know, Perry Farrell and Jane's Addiction were getting rolling. The Chili Peppers were really really kind of coming to prominence. Mother's Milk was an album that was beginning to get some commercial success. And so music was changing well before the Seattle scene exploded. And that's not in any way to diminish what's happened in Seattle. Because, you know, I love Pearl Jam. I love Soundgarden. Even had a big thing for Screaming Trees and Mudhoney and Mother Love Bomb, those bands that were kind of in their infancy. And, and, uh, you know, it's impossible to... To mention grunge without mentioning nirvana even though I, I, as i've said many times on this show they get more credit than they deserve but a lot of that scene had the way paid for it by, by by jane's addiction and the red hot Chili peppers so here are our top 10 jane's addiction songs so the first major album that came out with was uh, nothing shocking and ritual day low habitual and i have the uh, the band version of ritual so, like, they put this cover out, and uh, people were offended. They said it was kind of making some fun of the Madonna or whatever. And so, they released Ritual Delo Habitual with a copy of the First Amendment. It was just a white, a white background with black lettering, and all it says: James Dixon, Ritual de lo Habitual, and then the First Amendment. Things were different back then. All right, so number 10 on the list, Classic Girl. I I love this song. It's one of the more melodic songs that they do. That's the thing I love about Jane's Addiction. There's a lot of variety within the catalog. I think you'll dig that one. Going back to the first album is Had a Dad. And that was one that was really popular with my friends. And what's interesting is I think I I was the only one that came from a divorced family. But um, Had a Dad is one of those songs, too, that uh, a lot of angry teen angst kind of involved in that song. Number eight, a one that's a little more recent, is Superhero. I think you'll dig that one. I love the opening guitar riff. It's like, it reminds me that there is still a good alternative rock to be found. Number seven, Just Because. That's another one that uh, probably many of you haven't heard. Many people say, hey, well, you know, Steve, I was in the Jane's Addiction when I was in college. You know, they, they've released a couple of albums since then. They've had a couple of reunions. A lot of it fueled by money, for sure. But the reality of it is that they still produce good music. Number six, Ocean Size. That's another one. That's a classic one. Like, if you ever go see Jane's Addiction play, they're gonna, it's always going to be in a set list. People love that song and, and as well they should. Number five is a song about addiction. And it actually is uh, one of the first songs they wrote as a band as Perry Farrell was forming Jane's Addiction. He was trying to find a name for the band. And so one of his housemates was Jane. And uh, she was a heroin addict and so one of the friends suggested hey let's do Jane's heroin experience and Perry felt that that was not mysterious enough so they just called it Jane's addiction and there's a song called Jane says and it's about a conversation that he had when she was trying to kick heroin and um, it has become a bit of a uh, anthem for people in uh, in recovery and for people that are in active addiction it goes back a ways for sure. Number four, and this is a song, I don't think this was ever released as a single, but it is one of the more amazing songs in the alternative rock family of all time. And it's a song called Three Days. If you've never heard this song, you owe it to yourself. If you don't listen to anything else on this list, go listen to Three Days. It is an absolute masterpiece starts, builds, 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 explodes, and then fades. And it is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. Three days. Number two, and I think the, the the top three, I think we can all agree they're the top three. It's just a matter of what order we put them in. Maybe I sold out a little bit because I went with, um, you know, I guess the songs that were a little more Accepted commercially, but uh, one of my favorite Jane's addiction songs and it is number three Is mountain song and I actually have the soul kiss uh, VHS somewhere around here. I just don't have anything to play it on It was kind of the making of that video and kind of like the story behind the song. I love that song I love the guitar on it. I think Dave Navarro is an absolute virtuoso when it comes to all alternative rock guitar That's one of the better ones number two stop and this is like, I think Dave, I think we can kind of give Dave a lot of credit for for kind of bringing uh, this guitar sound into modern rock. And I, I give Stop a lot of credit for it because the way this thing starts, it's almost like he's playing a wah pedal, almost playing it backwards. But he changed and kind of created a new alternative rock sound. A lot of people began to mimic dave navarro and he was, dave was he's he's more than just the guy on ink master the reason he's on ink master is because he was an accomplished musician that's extremely intelligent but also too a guy that uh, is a tattoo enthusiast but uh you know dave spent some time with the red hot chili peppers recorded the one hot minute album with them and then got kicked out of the band because he was back on heroin but uh, i understand now he's living a life of recovery and doing exceptionally well but it is impossible to ignore Dave Navarro's influence on what we now know as alternative rock because he was the guy you go back to him and like John Frusciante from the Peppers those were the guys those were the guys that really changed the direction of alternative rock music without question number one you probably already know it right it's been called stealing which is unlike anything else in the catalog it almost didn't make the album They change it up. You got the dog barking, all kind of crazy stuff in there. And it was a huge runaway hit on MTV. I would say the video made this song so much more commercially successful because I think people saw that Jane's Addiction was really kind of a playful band, too. It wasn't all just heroin and, you know, despair. You know, there was a lighter side to Jane's Addiction and Perry Farrell. And Perry Farrell is a musical genius. He just hadn't done enough. You know, it's one of those things you look at and say, you know, it's impossible to ignore what he did to bring so many budding bands to the mainstream just because he was a visionary. He's like, hey, listen, we're our star is on the rise. Let's take our friends with us and really changed everything. I mean, let's go back and look here just real quickly before we move on. Let's go back and look at like the first Lollapalooza. And I'm going to run through this lineup with you. And here's a couple things too I bet you didn't know. You know they weren't able to keep bass players for a while. And at some point, Flea, flea was uh, involved with uh james addiction and duff mckagan that's right duff mckagan from guns N' roses was also the bass player that's when uh, obviously they were on you know hiatus with guns N' roses but uh so yeah some some awesome 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 bands so Lollapalooza, the very first one four-day music festival in chicago and then it later became you know a touring event but um Pretty crazy how this all thing came together. And so, so Perry Farrell was a co-founder of this deal. Let me find the, uh, you know, the lineup because we did a Lollapalooza last year. Didn't quite work. And, and who knew what Lollapalooza was? But uh, let me find this lineup and just kind of run this thing through you uh, just because I think you'll be interested to kind of, you know, kinda, you know some, of these, some of these bands that became very, very mainstream after this. Okay, so 1991, right? And this is when many of you were just kind of getting into this, right? This alternative rock thing in '91. The main stage, of course, Jane's Addiction, Susie and the Banshees, Living Color, Nine Inch Nails, Ice Tea and Body Count, The Butthole Surfers, The Rollins Band, Violent Femmes, and Fishbone. Now, I don't know if you know all those bands. You know, I loved them. <laughs> I, I did. I thought every one of those bands were extremely important. Now, uh, the side stage, Othello's Revenge, and there were a couple of smaller bands. So that was the first one. But it really exploded in 92. So 92, here's the main stage. Chili Peppers, Ministry, we talked about them recently. Ice Cube, Soundgarden, The Jesus and Mary Chain, Pearl Jam, and Lush. The side stage, listen to this. Rage Against the Machine, Tool. The Jim Rose Circus Sideshow. I don't know those guys at all. Of course, they had some theatrical groups shark bait the arch belly dancers archie bell dancers excuse me porno for pyros basshead cypress hill house of pain uh, arson garden seaweed seam green magnet school the booyah tribe stone temple pilots and many 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 others temple the dog and so you begin to look at all this and it's like you kind of understand how groundbreaking all this was of course in later years you had allison chain smashing pumpkins and then bands like Tool and Rage went to the main stage after being at the kiddie table there for a couple of years. And so, again, I think it's impossible to talk about rock music and especially alternative rock music and not mention the contributions of Perry Farrell. So there you go. Jane's Addiction. I've had several people ask for that one over the last several months. So we finally got to it. I sent Roy a list last week and said, hey, have we done these three? No, we haven't. OK, that's our week. So if you have ideas and suggestions for the top 10 list, reach out, let me know. I'm on all forms of social media, at Scout Steve R. And, of course, you can always reply uh, to Roy's tweets or Facebook posts about the top 10 list. He puts it on Spotify, sends it out. And, of course, Izzy Mandibom puts it on Apple Music for you guys. But uh, happy to do this. I want to thank you guys for your support of the top 10 list. Let me remind you too if you hadn't done so go to dogpilethebook.com and order pre-order your copies of Dogpile the book all pre-orders will be signed if you request they'll be personalized you got to put that in the notes section you can't message me i'm not going to remember i'm just telling you now and so we've already had a couple thousand people already pre-order a lot of people are saying hey steve i want to wait to a book signing i understand that but let me tell you this there's no guarantee there's no guarantee with the way the supply chain is, so we make an order, they come back and said, Hey, we're not going to be able to do that many by Christmas, so here's the number we can do. Of course, we'll do subsequent printings because we're going to continue to sell this book in the years ahead. But if you want it for Christmas, the best thing to do is to pre order through the website, dogpilethebook.com, or through a participating vendor, whether that be Lemuria Books, Bookmart Cafe, and many of those people like that that uh, you guys are familiar with, Turnrow. Uh, your favorite bookstores i would encourage you to take care of that do not delay i was telling somebody this yesterday here what's going to happen is we're going to get like two weeks before christmas and you like oh i want to get that book and everybody's going to be sold out and people are going to be tweeting mad things at me i have no control over that i'm telling you now if you want to ensure that you have a book from the first printing you need to go through dogpiledbook.com am telling you now all right let's take a look at uh, the rest of the weekend we're not playing right so we can still kind of relax and enjoy Uh, this segment of show brought to you by campusbookmart.net they carry my books too you can order that right with your order today when you go order all your mississippi state merch you can order flim flam stark villains alpha dogs even blooms of oleander from them how about that so if you've been looking for blooms of oleander and so i don't want to do a special order you can just kind of lump that in with all your Mississippi State hoodies and stuff. Standing man, Miss Kathy Brown, everybody up there will take care of you because in their minds, your family. If you can't make it to town to go see them, let me encourage you to visit them on the World Wide Web at campusbookmart.net. And by being a lawyer, bondyard listener, we'll give you a phrase that pays. That's BSR, which stands for Beautiful Steve Robertson. And that'll get you free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks. Any order less than $50, absolutely incomplete. Again, that's campusbookmart.net, promo code BSR. So it looks like there is a great day of football in front of us. I'm excited. You should be too. Because we can watch game day, and then we can turn on Arkansas at Ole Miss at 11, and then we won't be done with SEC football until somewhere around 11, maybe midnight. And then we can watch Pac-12, if you want. So we don't even have to leave the couch all day except to maybe get a drink and hit the head right I mean it's just as simple as that we're not going to be looking for anything to do tomorrow a lot of great football so let's start with Arkansas at Ole Miss I actually picked Ole Miss to win this game because number one it's at home right number two I think there is a subplot to this that is rather interesting you know last year Matt Corral absolutely imploded on the road at Fayetteville against Arkansas Barry Odom and them got just baited him in interceptions you and I both know Matt Corral is a better player than he was a year ago. It, whether we want to admit it or not, that's the reality of it. He is a better player. He will be better equipped now that he has seen what, how Barry Odom wants to defense him. Now, Barry could change some things up. I suspect that you're going to see a lot of drop eight in this ball game. And I think Arkansas is athletic enough as a front up there. They can neutralize some of the old Miss running game. There's some talk that – on Ely may not play, and of course there's a, you know there's a guard that's out. John Domingo still battling a foot injury. I mean there's you know Ole Miss is missing some pieces, and so I may be out on a limb here a little bit, but I just like Ole Miss at home. You know this has been a wild series over the years. I mean it really has been. There have been some years too that you think you know Ole Miss should roll over them and they don't. That's part of the deal. You know because it kind of became a bit of a rivalry. You know when houston not came to uh to oxford you know and uh and so some of those games were not very good you know some of those we expect them to be but there have been some other ones that are legendary i mean some of these overtime games between arkansas and ole miss i mean it's like of course you like it when ole Miss loses but you know i go back and i think about you know some of these you know was it six seven overtime games i mean it's insane to think about that and so Looking at the you know recent history between these two, you know Arkansas wins last year 33-21, and then that broke up a two-year streak, you know 18 and 19, and you know, the fighting Matt Lukes, Hey, they beat Arkansas. Well, prior to that, Ole Miss had lost four in a row to Arkansas, four in a row. Remember that one in 14? You remember that, the Mississippi Mayhem year, and then Arkansas beat them 30 to nothing. And so, Ole Miss has won two of the last seven. But I think that I just trust the quarterback situation at Ole Miss a little bit more. And and may, maybe I just don't want to have to listen to it. But I just think Ole Miss at home, I think Matt Corral will play better. I do think that, that Arkansas will be able to run the football. And if KJ Jefferson is anywhere close to 100%, I think he'll have a big game. I think that they will – be a competitive ball game but I, I do like Ole miss to win the game as much as i hate it uh, I, I do think they are the better team at this point point. and that sounds kind of silly people say but steve arkansas beat texas and texas a&m yeah i, I don't know how, how how good those wins are now in hindsight honestly you know Ole miss hadn't really played anybody either so it's kind of a toss-up between two teams that are pretty equal and comparable in talent and one of them is playing at home, so we're going to go with Ole Miss. Vanderbilt will go to Florida. Man, can you imagine how miserable a week it's been in Gainesville this week for Dan Mullen and that staff? And it's like, you got to get up to play Vanderbilt. You know, you, you blow the game last week. You have the lead. The field goal is blocked. You return for a touchdown. You have a chance inside the 20 in the final two minutes, and you can't finish the deal. You can't tie the game. And for all intents and purposes, you are out of the sec east race you're out and then you got to go play vanderbilt the good thing is it's home but you know as well as i do that that doesn't necessarily mean good things not that florida's in any danger of losing this game i think it's just the reality of it is is that georgia is just that much better than them florida is on the cusp of missing a new year six bowl a lot of people last year you know they got destroyed in that bowl game last year against oklahoma a lot of people thought Florida would be right back in the mix. They're 3 and 2 and 1 and 2 in the league right now. Of course, the loss to Alabama, you don't hold that against them. But the loss at Kentucky, you know, that's going to be difficult to overcome. There's no question about it. But let's just run this thing down here. You know, so they get Vanderbilt, that's a win. Then they got to go to LSU and who knows? Who knows? Then you get Georgia at Florida. Georgia should win that game handily. So that that gives you three losses. You got Florida, South Carolina. That's fine. Sanford at Florida it's fine. Florida at Mizzou. You know maybe they'll figure out some things defensively. And then Florida State at Florida. And so you look at this, and it's like, hey, the rest of the schedule is manageable with the exception of Georgia. The problem is Georgia gives you three losses. And so now you're looking to be a nine and three team, and have three losses in your league. Yeah, I guess it could still happen, you know, because there are some other teams out there. But, you know, Florida could very easily play their way out of the New Year's Six. And I think it's probably on the on the verge of happening. But no worries this week, Dan. And, again, I just go back to this. It's like, you know, we talk about the Peter principle. Every, every person rises to their own level of incompetence. And that's where Dan is. You know, Dan wanted to win an Apple championship. Very ambitious guy. I don't begrudge him that. But I think that he has found that the Florida job and the job that Urban Meyer did, it's just better. I think Urban was just more in tune with recruiting. I think Urban did a better job kind of selling himself. I think Dan kind of struggles with that because Dan comes off a little smug. I mean, and listen, Urban is not the best example to use right now as a representative of any program. But, you know, Urban was a lot more engaging, you know, when he was at Florida. And I, th- I think Urban was likable with the exception of Georgia and Florida State fans. I think people respected Urban. I just don't think people have that same uh, opinion of Dan. And, you know, that's just kind of the reality of life. Okay, South Carolina at Tennessee. You know, I I don't think South Carolina is going to be very good this year. And I know they're kind of clinging on to the hopes of making a bowl game. And they may. But after what we saw Tennessee do last week uh, offensively against Mizzou, and granted this Mizzou defense is not as as good as I would hoped it would be, Tennessee is playing with confidence. They're also playing at home. South Carolina struggles to score. I like Tennessee in the game. I know you guys do as well. It's interesting too, you know. Tennessee didn't play a lot of meaningful football this time of year, but uh, this will be one. So Tennessee will beat South Carolina. So South Carolina will be three and three and zero and three in the league, which is uh, not really good down the stretch. They do get Vanderbilt next week in Columbia. That should be a game they could win. It should get them to four wins. And then they travel to A&M. They host Florida. They go to Mizzou. They host Auburn. And then they host Clemson. So where are the wins coming from? Yeah. I mean, they're staring four and eight right in the face. Maybe they get to five and seven if they you know, can maybe clip up Mizzou or or I don't know who else you look at. I mean, there's just you look at this schedule and you realize that probably the highlights of the 2021 season for South Carolina have already taken place. So Tennessee wins, and I think Tennessee probably wins big. Georgia and Auburn. Guys, I'll be honest with you, this is one of my favorite rivalries in the Southeastern Conference. Forget Tennessee, Alabama. Give me Georgia-Auburn. It's always a meaningful game, and it's always a game between two of the most athletic teams in the country. It is a college football fan's dream. Because more times than not, you don't have a rooting interest. You can just watch a great game of football. And there are some crazy things that have happened between these two teams. I look forward to the game. It's at Auburn, which probably allows Auburn to keep it a little bit closer. I still think is the best team in the country. If I was an AP voter, I would vote them number one. People would say, well, yeah, Alabama had not lost. No, they haven't. But I don't think anybody can look at the way Georgia has played and the way Alabama has played and say, yeah, definitively Alabama's a better team. I think Georgia is. I would vote them number one. I think Georgia wins this ball game probably a couple touchdowns because they're so fast defensively. When you look at that linebacker core, you've got some future pros out there. And when you're a team like Auburn that wants to run wide – you're not going to be able to get the corner against Georgia, which is going to force Bo Nix to throw the football. And we saw him make some huge plays last weekend, you know, for sure against LSU. And that game should have been over, right? Don't you agree? LSU should have been able to close it. what was it, 13 nothing with the football. And then Nix brings him back and makes that crazy play on fourth down that really was kind of a backbreaker for LSU. So, Georgia will put the game in Bo Nix's hand. I just don't think there's enough around him for him to win the game. North Texas at Mizzou. I told you guys this Mizzou defense has been disappointing. Uh, they can score some points. They'll be able to out-athlete them on defense. I, I won't be surprised if North Texas is is in it for the half. And I think Mizzou will figure it out and kind of get things going, probably when going away late. But uh, – you know, remember North Texas? Remember when they, they beat Arkansas and they had that crazy punt return thing where they faked like it was a dead ball and they took off and ran for a touchdown? It's crazy. Yeah, I don't expect that to happen this week. Okay, LSU at Kentucky. This is a really, really intriguing game. And I struggled with the pick. And maybe it's because I picked Kentucky. Because I I, I kind of threw shade at Kentucky all year and they've kind of proved me wrong. I my tip the cap to them. I could have talked myself into LSU because the most dangerous LSU team is when Ed Orr's runs back is against the wall. You saw it happen last year, right? They were 3-5, and five, had to go to the Swamp and had to play Ole Miss, and Ole Miss offensively was playing pretty well at the time, and they dominated the last two ball games. Well, I think LSU will come out ready to play. And I think Max Johnson and uh, you know, Butte and those guys – be able to score I, i don't think this kentucky defense athletically can run with lsu i just wonder at times how the lsu defense can hold up against kentucky and that sounds kind of crazy to say i think this is an ugly ball game i really do i think this is going to be one of those games where whoever makes the first big mistake probably loses I don't think Kentucky is great. We know that LSU is not. LSU is more gifted athletically, and so if they play up to their potential, they'll win the ballgame. I personally think that all this off-the-field nonsense has gotten to LSU. And and then you lose a ballgame early, you begin to doubt yourself. Then you lose a game you weren't supposed to lose. You begin to doubt yourself more. And so this will either be a defeated or a dangerous LSU team going on a road to Lexington I think Stoops and those guys will have a great game plan together. They're just going to have to win some one-on-one matchups outside. They're going to have to do it. LSU can't run the football, so they're one-dimensional in many respects. Uh, Kentucky is pretty, pretty good against a run, so I don't think it's going to matter. It's going to matter. Can they keep Max Johnson upright? I just think there's just too many question marks for LSU. I think Kentucky is playing with confidence, playing at home. They're the ones with the number next to their name. They deserve it. They're actually favored in the ballgame, and they should be i got kentucky winning an ugly one alabama at a&m i have read with great interest some of the comments on the a&m message board you know i've had time to look at all that stuff this week and i don't don't believe some of the things that i read i mean it just doesn't make a lot of sense you know it just it doesn't make a lot of sense a&m is in trouble and uh, they are staring an 0-3 start in the SEC right in the face. And they're not done losing ballgames because they're right in that same pack with us, right? Well, if you don't play well, you're going to get beat. You're not talented enough to overcome kind of mediocre play. I read some guy, and, and I guess it's the Message Board Genius Twitter account, shared one of these. One A&M guy says, you know what, maybe we've been playing possum the last couple weeks. We've been sandbagging against Arkansas and Mississippi State, and it cost us, and we're going to unleash our offense on Alabama. Hey, good luck with that, Tex. Alabama has been favored big in these ball games in recent years. And somehow, some way, A&M, even in leaner years, let's just say, they have found a way to keep those games competitive. And those are the things that I look at. And so I, I won't be surprised if you look up And all of a sudden, this game is close. Alabama may lead 10 points or more. A&M has not defeated Alabama since Johnny Manziel did it in Tuscaloosa in 2012. Since that time, here are your scores. 49-42, 59-0. That'll get you going. 41-23, 33-14, 27-19. 45-23, 47-28, 45-23, 47-28, and then last year got after them pretty good, 52-24. And so, yeah, I mean, so the margin of victory, Alabama has put them away late, but they've been in these ball games for at least a half. I don't think they will be in this one, but I won't be surprised if they are. I just think Alabama is rolling, and I think they smell blood in the water. I didn't, I'll be honest with you. I, I, watching that Alabama Ole Miss game on replay, I didn't think Alabama played exceptionally well. I thought they ran the ball well, but I didn't think they played exceptionally well. And so, maybe give Ole Miss some credit for that too, but it, I mean, I thought, you know, the Ole Miss rush defense was awful. But I didn't think that Alabama just looked like they were a dominant team. I suspect Saban probably jumped on them pretty good, even though they were up 35 nothing in that ballgame. They did coast a little bit late. I had a friend of mine say, you know, I think Ole Miss kind of figured some things out late. No, 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 they didn't. No, they didn't. no. They didn't figure out anything late except that their one first-team offense can score against the bandits of the Alabama defense late in the fourth quarter. That's all we learned. We already knew that. So, no, they didn't figure anything out. I think Alabama will probably figure out that Nick Saban expects better of them to finish ball games and not just coast to a finish. And so I think that we'll see probably a more emphatic Alabama fourth quarter this go-around. But, again, we like Alabama. So run down the winners for you. Probably will go to script, and last weekend I was the only person to pick Mississippi State to win, so I gained a little ground. So let's go Ole Miss over Arkansas, Florida over Vanity, Tennessee over South Carolina, Georgia over Auburn, Missoula over North Texas, Kentucky over LSU, and Alabama on the road over A&M. I, th- I don't know that anybody could really argue against many of those. I think it's a pretty straightforward week, you know, with the exception of maybe LSU and Kentucky. That That's a, that's a toss-up, but I just – I mean, how can you have any faith in LSU at this point? I don't think you can. All right, final segment of the show brought to you by Portico. And uh, if you were hoping to move into phase one, you have waited too late. Phase one now completely sold out. In fact, three lots in phase two have been sold. So this is the focus for you now. Rather than wait for them to build a house and say, oh, you know, I, I love it, except no. You can go pick out your lot and pick out your floor plan and kind of get this thing going. You're not going to be in there for the holidays. You're going to be in your current house for the holidays, but you can begin to look forward. Begin to think about you know what Hey, i I've always wanted to live in Starkville. I've always wanted to move back to Starkville. Now you can and whether it be your primary residence or perhaps an investment property or just your ballgame weekend retreat. Portico is the way to go. Very easy to get to. You turn off of 82 on a 12. You take that first ride on Pat Station Road. Next thing you know, boom, you're in Portico. If I was moving to Starkville now, Portico is where I'd move. 1.1 miles from campus. How can you beat that? And it's on the backside of campus. It's over by the neighborhood market. It's the residential side. You don't have all the craziness and hustle and bustle of campus. And we love that. But it doesn't mean that we'd want to live amongst that all the time because we're old now, right? We don't, we don't want to live in a cotton district. We want to live in Portico. So check it out. Call our friend Brooks Bryan. You guys know Brooks. If you don't, you should. Brooks, uh, former Diamond Dog, loves Starkville, loves Mississippi State, trying to make Starkville a better place to live and also to give you guys some nice places to choose from as you begin to choose. Maybe it be your retirement home. You know, maybe this is it. I'm going to retire in Starkville and call it a day. Or maybe I'm going to move my family to the Golden Triangle, and I want to be in Starkville. I want to be near the action. You give Brooks a call. 601-416-8075. Again, that's 601-416-8075. If you're driving and perhaps didn't get the number and you want it, reach out to Brooks on social media or reach out to me. I'm happy to send you his number. Again, that's Portico. Make it your next move. All right, so we don't have a game this weekend, but I wanted to talk about some Bulldog history today. So the very first college football game that I ever attended, November 1st, 1980. That's right, I actually was there when we beat the Bear. My dad brought me and my brother, it was incredible. But halfway through the ball game, my brother defected to Alabama. He, he, he got caught up in the Roll Tide cheers and he was standing up and doing all that. And uh, of course, when the game was over and we won, my dad, Freddie Robertson said, uh, well, Pat, how are you gonna get home? Remember I said, oh, I was only joking, yeah. So, so he had a moment or two there where he was not true maroon. Now he is true maroon now, but I never wavered, never, in my existence, have I ever wavered when it's come to Mississippi State, and I hope that you can say the same. And so, that ball game back in 1980, John bond became my hero. We've talked about him on the show. We got ready to play Little Shoes, the Ultimate Tiger Killer. But I was so excited about Mississippi State because, like, you know what? Alabama was number one. It won back to back NAFL championships and I guess 27 games in a row, something ridiculous like that. And we beat them. And so I thought, well, hey, this is how things are. Mississippi State is really good. Mississippi State is really, really cool. Well, I think Mississippi State is really, really cool, but that was really more of an outlier. But the reality of it is, I got to witness the biggest win in school history in person. The man behind that was Coach Henry Ballard. Had a chance several years ago to interview Coach Ballard before he passed away. Count that as one of the greatest favors. The good Lord's done to me, allowing me to speak to Coach Ballard. It was so much fun. Probably one of the last interviews he ever did. It means a lot to me that he was able to do that with us. And so Coach Ballard played at the University of Texas and then transferred to Southwest Texas State. He was considered by many to be one of the most innovative offensive minds in all of college football once he got there. But he kind of perfected his offense as a Texas high school coach, kind of like Eric Taylor from Friday Night Lights, right? He kind of of worked with it a little bit, kind of massaged it a little bit and found a way, and he worked his way up. Ingleside High School there in uh, Texas, Breckenridge, San Angelo, Central. And then he got a job – at the University of Texas. Now, this is where there is some confusion. And there shouldn't be any confusion. There are a lot of people that credit Darrell Royal with the wishbone. That is absolutely incorrect. Darrell Royal hired Emery Ballard to install the wishbone. How about that? And then former, and Dale Royal, also a former coach at Mississippi State too, left us, went to Washington, ended up at Texas, won three national championships. But he hires Emery Ballard to install the wishbone, which when properly executed is impossible to defend. There's a lot of offenses that say that that's true with the wishbone. You got the right quarterback, you got the right skill guys. When run correctly, it's impossible to defend. And then everybody ended up running it. It became all the rage in college football. Alabama ran it. And so because of the fact that Emory Ballard knew the wishbone, he also knew how to stop it. He knew the issues and the reads that would give the quarterback trouble. And so he taught his defense. He coached a lot on defense the week of that 1980 ball game. Kind of explain those guys, okay, listen, here's what we want to do. Let's this, this put him in a decision-making process. This will kind of slow things down. This will be something they're uncomfortable with. And so you give Coach Ballard a lot of credit, you know, for that on both sides, that it was his offense, and because of the fact that he knew the nuances of the scheme, he was able to prepare the Bulldog defense that was absolutely outstanding personnel-wise. You know, Tyrone Keys and Billy Jackson Johnny Cooks. I mean, it was, it was a phenomenal group. Rob Fessmeyer, you had some guys out there that were, you know, they were bone chillers, man. We did, they weren't just guys that had a good plan. You had future NFL guys out there on the front. So they could compete with Alabama athletically. It wasn't like we just schemed them. We had a chance to line up and play with them. And the difference in the ball game was the fact that we had a little more in the tank schematically than they did. And there were a couple times I thought we were going to score touchdowns We win the game 6-3. One of the biggest plays in that game, I don't think it's fully appreciated, is our guy Dana Moore. We're lining up to kick another field goal to make it 9-3. And Alabama blocks the field goal, and it looks like they're going to recover it and be able to take it back. But Dana Moore, little bitty Dana Moore, runs and dives basically into the fray, and covers the, the block field goal to prevent Alabama from advancing it. Now, the rules have changed a lot since then. You know, you couldn't advance certain things or whatever, you know. And so maybe that is one of those plays, maybe, maybe I'm misremembering that. But I know for a fact they blocked it and we jumped on it. I don't ever remember a time when you couldn't advance a block field goal. But the, the reality of it is, is they did block it, and we recovered and so late in that ball game, you know, it's like we all kind of wonder what's going to happen. You know, it's kind of like the A&M thing, not the same magnitude, obviously, because Alabama was a much better team. But, you know, they're, they're getting ready to put their light drive together and cowbells are going crazy and the fans are going insane. And we make a big play. You know, they're passing the ball down the field. The next thing you know, they're in our red zone and we force a fumble. The next thing you know – it's history and then we still had to run an offensive play and we didn't we didn't realize this in live action we found out later that uh when john bine was getting ready to snap the last ball that player from alabama swatted the snap and so as a result it kind of went sideways we jump on it and it's like even if it was a safety we win ball game six five right but even until the very end it was never easy for mississippi state and it never has been it never will be it's important to kind of understand that when we win those kinds of games we've got everybody against us the officials commentators not that it should matter for the most part the media but emory Ballard taught us that we could compete a lot of that too came on the hills of bob tyler and it really did you go back and look at what Emory Blard did. He, you know, he, he had been fired at A&M, or he resigned at A&M in 78. We hire him. He had a decent run at A&M. It kind of got off to a rough start. He was hired in 72, 3-8, 5-6, 8-3, 10-2. They finished 11th in the country that year, 10-2 the next year. They win the Sun Bowl, finish number 7. 8-4 and four the next year. They lose the Blue Bonnet Bowl. And then they're 4-2. and two midway through the 78 season and he quote resigns and so we hire him in 79 we're three and eight and then in 80 we get a, a kid named john bond out of aldice georgia kid that originally uh, had some roots in starkville leads us to a nine and three record a number 19 finish in the country we lose to nebraska in a sun bowl then we're eight and four in 81 we win the hall of fame game against kansas finished 17th in the country according to the coaches poll and then it kind of went downhill from there. Five and six, three and eight. We had so many injuries in '82 that that was a, a team that had a chance to be really, really good. We had some guys we had to replace on the defensive line, but uh, we had some some athletic players who just had some injuries that year. Just couldn't figure it out. And then of course '83 was uh, kind of an abysmal season for us. Three and eight, four and seven. And then '85, you know, we come out. and we're gonna, we're going to win the SEC. And we, we go 0 for 6 in the league. Really difficult year. And uh, Emory was a little testy, you know, late with uh, the media. like People would ask him, you know, hey, you're know, you going to be back. You're be back. You're going to be back. Uh, he said, I, that's my decision, not yours. But that 85 year, we opened the year in pretty good shape. The final year, of course. We beat Arkansas State and beat Syracuse. And we beat Southern Miss 23-20. 3-0 and start, and then we lose to number 11 Florida in a respectful game, 36-22. Then we beat Memphis, 31-28. So you're 4-1. and one, You're thinking, okay, it sets up pretty well for us down the stretch. Uh, we get beat 33-19 by Kentucky. We beat Tulane to kind of give us a chance to, you know, to get bowl eligible. And you've got murderer's row left. You've got Auburn, Alabama, LSU, and Ole Miss, and we lost all four of those games. Lost all four. And it didn't end that well for us at all. And so our fans began to wear these buttons, you know, said make Emory a memory. And so we certainly did. And so uh, it didn't end as well as we'd hoped, but Emory Ballard brought some great players and some great moments to Mississippi State. And I interviewed him about the Egg Bowl years ago for a story that I read on jeanspage.com. And I asked him, I said, well, Coach, what does it mean to win the Egg Bowl? What does it mean to win the battle for the golden egg? He goes, let me tell you this, Padna. He said, everything is better when you win the golden egg. He said, the water is cleaner, the grass is greener, and your girlfriend is prettier. Pretty profound words there from the old coach. Uh, Sadly, we lost Coach Ballard several years ago and uh, essentially died from uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And he had already been sick. I guess um, he'd had some health problems when I spoke to him He his health was deteriorating then but uh, he passed away February 10th at the age of 83 in Georgetown Texas it's it's sad to think about that I mean it really is but uh, he lived a full life and the fact that we're still talking about him today and we're still talking about that 1980 win over Alabama says a lot about his legacy he's a guy that grew up in a blue-collar family one of 12 kids his dad was a geologist and a guy that was basically an old man went out to Texas to kind of take advantage of the old boom in Texas. And, um, you know, the rest they say is rock and roll history, you know. It's just one of those things you look back in hindsight and you see that Emmy Villard was pretty much successful everywhere he'd been in life, everywhere along the way. Won three state titles as a high school coach. And that's when he began to kind of tinker with the uh, – The three back formations and kind of move people around that sort of stuff and and in many respects was considered an offensive football genius Amory Ballard and so as I begin to think about Alabama and we'll have a different hero next week when we get ready to talk a little bit closer about Alabama maybe we do it every day this week but uh, but the reality of it is is that when you look back you know we had the players we had the scheme but we had the coach you know we had the coach we had a guy that was used to winning that had won at every level and so he didn't just come to Mississippi State to collect a check. He came to Mississippi State to win ball games, and thankfully he did win uh, some big ball games for us. And uh, I'm very, very grateful and appreciative to Coach Ballard and his family, and I hope you guys are as well. And, um, you know, I never know what to expect, you know, when we begin to kind of move forward and, you know, how these coaches are going to be remembered. But that's one thing I'll say for sure is we've had some some great men, and many of them have been great coaches. And we've had some good men that have just been okay coaches and some that were bad coaches. But very few of them have the crowning jewel of their coaching resume of beating number one Alabama, defending national champion Alabama, at a game that basically redefined Mississippi State football. We went from thinking, okay, we can play it close to, hey, we can really win. We can really do it. It was such a big deal that they printed T-shirts and bumper stickers and and, um, I heard – one of Jack Crystal's daughters say on that that SEC story about the great voices of the SEC is that before dinner time that night, people had shown up at Jack's house. It had shirts that said, "I was there when we beat the bear," and it was such a huge moment for us. And even being a kid, I mean, I'm eight years old at the time, and I remember going to school that Monday with such pride and thinking. Man, we just beat number one Alabama. And I remember my mom that year, we're getting ready to go play Nebraska in the Sun Bowl. And she goes, listen, I don't want you to get your hopes up because Nebraska is just in a different league than Mississippi State. And I looked at my mom with daggers in my eyes. And I said, Mama, we beat Alabama. And she's like, okay, okay, baby, I understand. Okay, okay. So I still, I believed then and I still believe now. You can never count Mississippi State out because you just never know what we're going to do. All right, that's going to do it for today, man. hope you guys have had a great week. hope you enjoy your weekend. And again, a great weekend of college football. I remind you, as always, go to Dogpile the Book, and you can get copies of Dogpile, Flim Flam, Stark Villains, Alpha Dogs, Blooms of Oleander, of course, available through other outlets like Amazon, uh, Booksmegan.com and other places like that. But we uh, will be back with you guys on Monday. We'll recap the weekend and begin really getting serious about the University of Alabama. Looking forward to that ball game. I don't think it's got to be something that we have to endure. I don't think it's going to be anything that we enjoy. But I do think that we can play it a little bit closer than we did last year. And I think I'm eager to kind of see how this team and this offense perhaps are beginning to grow up. It'll be a good litmus test for us, win or lose. Until next time, let's all live our lives in a way we'll make more friends than enemies and people can see a difference in the way we live. This is the story of the one.